a, uh, looks like it's going to be a beautiful day now. I see blue skies. What more could you want? And uh, well, actually, here's what more you could want, which is blue skies next Sunday. Amen? Next Sunday, let me remind you, we want to be really clear about this because I told the 8 o'clock, they would have to, if they came at 8, they're going to have to wait two hours for the service here. You guys will only have to wait uh, about 30 minutes, so that's good. So if you forget, it's not quite as big of a deal, but um, please do uh, come here next Sunday. We will be outside as long as the weather is good. If not, we'll just have one 10 o'clock here um, inside here. We'll have some overflow if we need that, um, but we will be live streaming as well at that uh, at that time, and so uh, it'll be great to see you, kind of a family reunion. There will be food and um, activities. It will be my last Sunday before I head off uh, for uh, sabbatical, and you know, some folks have, have asked uh, when I'm getting rid of the beard, and um, it, it will be, uh, I, it'll be as soon as we step back land onto the lower 48. In fact, I think Megan is bringing scissors with her. Um, and so we'll see if I actually am able to last that long or if in the middle of the night it just is gone. So uh, just to let you guys uh, know, so we're very excited. So please, uh, please be a part of that next Sunday. Uh, and then I also want to say, I said this in the midweek video, but uh, obviously the CDC kind of changed things pretty dramatically this past week. And uh, so we will have a special session meeting on uh, uh, this, this coming up week just to kind of discuss what that means for us. And if there are any changes, I want you to know that we will communicate that with you this next week. All right, sisters and brothers, this week we're looking at the Gospel of John. I'll just warn you, it's a little hard to kind of just dive into this particular passage. Uh, and so we'll try to kind of explain what's been going on before after I have read from this. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. For he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray for your presence in our midst even now. That you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to what you would have us to hear today. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, as I said, if you just kind of pop into this particular passage at verse 60, it's a little confusing as to what exactly is happening, which is 
uh, uh, but that said, you can still know, even if you just started reading that, that clearly, once again, Jesus is saying some things that his disciples, that the crowds, don't really like. We've been talking about that quite a bit over the last few weeks. So what exactly is going on in this sixth chapter? Well, let's just kind of quickly give you a brief summary in, in case you haven't read it this week. Uh, the crowds are beginning to swell. Once again, oftentimes when Jesus is kind of, you know, going about and, and doing these miracles and things like that, the, the crowds begin to grow and grow. And, and so we certainly see that in the sixth chapter. At the very beginning, you have the very famous miracle of the, of the feeding of the 5,000. And, and you know that everyone who was gathered around, they couldn't believe it. Their minds were blown. In fact, John tells us they were so impressed by this that they uh, were going to forcibly make him the king. And Jesus uh, didn't want that to occur, and so he, uh, he, he disappeared, we are told, and kind of went off on his own. Later on that day, the disciples were going to head over to Capernaum, and so they decided to climb aboard the boat, and they, they went across to Capernaum. Well, the next day, there were still some of those 5,000 who were around, and they noticed that there was no Jesus on this side of the sea. But what they had also known, because they had seen, was that only the 12 disciples had gotten into the boat and there was only one boat. And so they all began to wonder, well, where's Jesus? What happened? And so they said, well, let's go across the sea. Maybe somehow he's over there. And so they all get into their own boats. It's like this kind of regatta, if you will. And they all kind of go over. You can just see their excitement. They're rowing. They're saying, what, what's happening? I don't know. They're doing something. And so they get over there and they're like, whoa. They find Jesus. How did you get here, Jesus? And you can just imagine that once again, their minds are blown. They are entranced. They can't believe it. Who is this guy? I mean, this is an amazing time. And so Jesus chooses to take this time yet again to begin to tell them about what it means to follow him, about the struggles of what it means to follow Jesus. And he begins to tell them who exactly he is. And this began to trouble them. He began by telling them one of the seven I am metaphors that are seen throughout the Gospel of John. This one in the sixth chapter is, I am the bread of life. And, and then he goes on to say, I have been sent down from heaven. I am the, the son of God. And well, at that point, some of those disciples began to scratch their heads. Whoa, you're the son of God? And, and so John tells us that a couple of them were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't this just Joe and Mary's son? Right? Like, we know him. And, and Scripture doesn't say this, but you can kind of tell it's what's happening next, which is that, wait a second, I changed this kid's diaper. And it stank just like everyone else's diaper. Like, who does he, what is he talking about? Uh, yeah, I, we, we believe that there's maybe something a little bit unique about you, but the Son of God? And so they began to kind of question who this was that they had been following. And, and then Jesus goes on because he says, you know what, and you should probably eat of the bread of life. And then they were really, you know, struck like, wait, is this some kind of call to, to cannibalism? It's this very strange thing. And so that by the end of the sixth chapter, as Dale Bruner points out, there are really, Jesus has given them several reasons to not want to follow him anymore. Uh, some think that he just thinks far too highly of himself. We're okay with you being a prophet, but you trying to tell us that you've been sent from heaven, there's just no way. 
Others, uh, they, they didn't really like uh, the, the fact that he was kind of describing how he was going to have this bloody death. They didn't think that that was really something that was appropriate. It didn't make sense to them. And even others didn't like the fact that he said that salvation would come only through him. And so they all began to question. They all began to struggle. And it became too much for many of these disciples. And so they decided to simply leave him rather than follow him any longer. Following Jesus is not easy. This is what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. In fact, it seems like if you think about our sermon series title, Grace Dangerous, we've been spending a lot of time talking about dangerous of late. Right? Last week we said, are you willing to be an idiot for the Almighty? And we talked about just how difficult that is to be an idiot for the Almighty. The week before that, we talked about the road to Emmaus. How in those moments of loneliness or, or, or those moments when things are not going your way, it is really hard at times to see Jesus. And so it's really difficult at times to wonder, well, well has God just left us? Uh, where is he after all? And, and in those moments, it's hard to trust him. It's hard to have faith. And then, of course, kind of the, um, the, the most difficult of the passages that we've looked at thus far was just a few weeks earlier where Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you must hate your mother and your father, your brother and your sister, your son and your daughter. All of these things make it incredibly difficult to follow Jesus. I mean, when Jesus is doing the miracles, when he's talking about love and grace, the crowds begin to swell. More and more people want to follow him. But as soon as he begins to describe who he is, as soon as he begins to tell people, this is what it costs if you want to follow me, they begin to constrict dramatically. And over these last several weeks, as we've been talking about all of these difficult passages, one of the things that I do as a preacher is I am oftentimes struck by how Jesus just keeps saying these things, even if people don't like it. In fact, he, he, he sometimes even seems to kind of turn the screw a bit more. One commentator points out how this week, whenever he's offended them, he says to them, oh, are you offended? Well, then how scandalized will you be when you see that I go up to heaven and you think, wow, how does Jesus do this? He just seems to not even care, right? He just seems to say, look, I know you may not like this, but I'm going to say it anyways. And it seems to me oftentimes that he just doesn't care whether or not they believe him, whether or not they like him, whether or not they agree with what he's going to say. He just says what he wants to say. He's almost like a machine, it seems like. And as a preacher, I think to myself, man, I know how hard it is at times to say things that you know people are not, gonna be, are not going to like. And I think, wow, how can I be more like Jesus in this machine-like way? I'm just going to say what I want, and I don't care what any one thinks it's a dream but then I reach verse 66 verse 66 is of course the verse where it says that many disciples remember this it's not just the crowds any longer it's many of the disciples leave 
Jesus. And I tend to think to myself, he won't care. He's Teflon Don. It doesn't matter to him. He'll, he'll just say, whatever. I don't care. Gone. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's fine. But in the very next verse, Jesus looks at the 12 disciples, and one wonders whether these are not the very last left. And he looks at them and he says, do you also wish to go away? Or I like how the NIV puts it, you, you don't want to leave too, do you? Just that, just that question kind of forced me to stop for a moment and to begin to wonder whether or not Jesus is as machine-like when he says these difficult words as we might sometimes assume that he is. Even just in that one simple question, we might just wonder or be reminded that Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully human, which means he has emotions, which means that he has a sense of loss and of pain. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that Jesus is a quivering mass. And as soon as people leave in the scene, he's over there and he's just kind of kicking the sand and he's just saying, oh man. And he looks over to the 12 and he says, oh, are you guys going to leave me too? This is the worst. I don't think that. Nor do I think that Jesus then says, well, I shouldn't have said those things. I, I'm going to have to change kind of, you know, what I say from now on. I'm going to have to adapt the message if I really want to sell this thing. But I do think that there is in that simple question this beautiful image that Jesus is not a machine, but that he is fully human. Of course, this isn't the only time that we see this. In just a few chapters, Jesus, after the death of Lazarus, when Mary is crying and the others around her are crying, Jesus, we are told, also then began to weep. Or in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he begins to weep because of the fact that he knows that they have not understood how to find peace and he knows that destruction is coming their way and so he begins to weep again. That there is this sense, of course, that when Jesus decided to come on this earth, what we talk about with great regularity is the physical cost. The physical cost, what he sacrificed for us when he was up on the cross. And we talk about that a lot and for good reason. But what I am not sure that we are very mindful of is the emotional cost that Jesus felt daily. The emotional cost. Think about what this would be like for you when people left almost daily, it seemed, because they did not believe you or because they thought, I cannot agree, I cannot follow you anymore. Think about the daily emotional cost when you have called people and you've called the 12 and you have these special conversations where you think this is wonderful and then they deny you in small and large ways throughout your ministry with them. Think about the cost, the daily cost of knowing you have called somebody and every day when you look at this Judas Iscariot, 
you know that one day he is going to betray you and be the reason for your death. And yet Jesus continues to bear this vulnerability because he cares for us and because he is passionate for us. And while it might seem like Jesus has the ability to shut down his emotions and become a machine, I think that is an injustice to him and to his humanity. What is important to realize is that, yes, Jesus says things that he knows are going to cause people pain. He says things in spite of the cost. And yet, he continues to bear that cost because that is the price of love. And if one is not willing to bear the cost of emotional pain and loss, then one is not willing to love. See, I think that's really important. I think it's actually almost foundational to our faith and our understanding of Jesus. You see, if, as we've been talking about, we, those hard parts of following Jesus that are so difficult, the being the idiot for the Almighty, the truly believing, even when you feel lonely and you can't see Jesus, the hating of the, of the family in order for that Jesus is elevated over everything. If that's all that you see and you believe that this is a machine that is telling you to do these things, then you will begin to believe that Jesus is some kind of tyrant or dispassionate despot, and you will not be able to serve or follow him, you certainly will not be able to do so out of a place of joy and grace. We have to begin to see God, to see Jesus through this lens of his love and his tearful engagement and pain when we decide to go astray. Walter Wengren, a, uh, an author and actually a professor for a long time up at Valparaiso, University tells a story about when his son was younger, so many years ago, and, and he walked into his son's room one day, and there was a stack of comic books in there. And so he said to his son, hey, where'd you, where'd you get those comic books? And, and his son said, oh, I, I, I took them from the library. And he said, mm, took them or borrowed them? And he said, oh, no, I took them. And so he took, Walt, he took the son, Walter took his son, and he kind of marched him down to the library like any good parent would do and kind of gave him a stern lecture, made him apologize to the librarians, and, and, and then he went home, okay. Sometime later, another day, he walks into his son's room again. There's a whole other stack of comic books. He says, what, what's going on? Where did you get these? And his son, you know, realized there was really no use to lie. And so he said, well, I, last summer when we were on vacation, I stole them from a store. So they were too far away. They weren't going to go back to that place. And so Walter said, all right. So he just tore them all up and he set them on fire right in front of him so that he could see. You can't do this. Hopeful, of course, that this would be the last time. Sometime later, another day, he walks in and there is yet one more stack of comic books. And sure enough, he has gotten these in a way that is not pleasing to Walter. At this point, Walter, he doesn't know what else to do. So as he tells the story, he says, I, I decided, because this is not something we did very often in my household, but we decided, I decided I had, I had to spank him. So he said he spanked him, and right after that, he looked at his son. His son had this kind of sense of shame clearly on him, these welled up tears. And Walter said he kind of ran out of the room, and he began to weep. 
Several years later, Walter's wife, uh, uh, the son's mom, was talking to her son. They were just kind of reminiscing about this period of his son's life when he went on this strange comic book stealing spree. And she said, well, all I know is this. That punishment was clearly the punishment that worked because after that, you never stole another comic book. Her son looked at her and said, Mom, it, it wasn't the punishment. It was the fact that right after that, I could hear Dad sobbing. You see, I, I think that there is something that happens when we begin to understand in a deeper way, when we begin to realize the pain that others feel on our behalf, when that happens, you begin to realize just how much they love you. And it begins to awaken us up to whatever it is that may have been causing that person pain and anguish and loss. Heidi Husted says that this is exactly the way it is with God. That one of the things that we have to begin to do and we have to almost force ourselves this time is to begin to realize that this Jesus who came to this earth, that every day he is willing to bear the cost, bear the vulnerability of what it means to be in relationship with us. And even in those moments when we may be broken, those moments when we may want to turn and flee, that Jesus is committed to continuing to come after us no matter what it might cost him, no matter the loss and the pain that he may feel. And if we do not understand that, then we have misunderstood Jesus. That his heart breaks for us when we struggle and when we are in pain. But there's also something else, it seems to me, building off of that understanding of Jesus which is that we are then, as we experience that, are called to then look at one another through that lens of willingness to love no matter the cost, no matter the pain, and even in those times when it may make us vulnerable. Let me be clear. What I'm not suggesting is that we continue to have to be in relationship in those moments if we are being abused in some way. We're not called to be vulnerable in that manner. But in a healthy way, in a healthy relationship, what all of us must understand is that just as we see with Jesus, if we are not willing to love in spite of what it costs us, in spite of the pain that we may feel, then we are not actually willing to love. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded just kind of of, uh, of what it means to pastor a church. Maybe it's because I'm close to the sabbatical. I'm just kind of reminiscing. Uh, it's not like it's been that long, but 15 or 16 years now of being a pastor and one of the things you learn, typically you learn this actually, sometimes most pastors, I think they learn this within the first couple of months, which is that when you pastor a church, there will always be people who leave. Now, they leave for different and sundry reasons. For me, uh, what I have noticed over the last 15 years is that people leave uh, uh, sometimes because of something I've said. 
You know, they don't like what I've said. They disagree with what I've said. Sometimes uh, they don't like it. It's not what I've said. It's just how loud I've been when I've said it. I see some of you nodding your heads. I get it. I, I annoy myself sometimes with how loud I am. Other times, of course, uh, they at least say it's not because of me. Uh, uh, sometimes it's, uh, well, you know what, we, uh, we just, we can't fit a Sunday morning service in. And, and, and so we need to go to someplace else because they have a Saturday night service. And, and I get it. There are lots of reasons. And I've said this before. I, it's okay. You know, I know that there are times when it is good and right to leave a congregation. And it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. I get all of that. So please hear me. But, but let me just reflect for a moment on what I've noticed about myself in those times which is that when somebody leaves, what I, what I discover about myself is that I just get really angry. And so I say either just to myself or oftentimes Megan's able to receive this. She's so fortunate. And I say something like, well, you know what? I never really liked them anyway. And I'll come up with all of these different things that I didn't like about them, even though there may be a much larger list about things I really do like about them. I, I quickly crumple those up and throw it away, and I just say, well, I, didn't, I, I never liked those things. Or, or I'll say, you know, somewhat flippantly, well, I, I hope they enjoy being at, you know, at convenience community church, you know, where it's just the right time for you. Or, hey, good luck finding, you know, church of the, our pastors as quiet as a church mouse church. I hope you like that. If you don't like it, go to the library, you know. I mean, I do all of these things, right? And, and it doesn't take a great psychologist to realize what I am doing, which is this, that it's much easier just to try to get angry or to, or, or to criticize or whatever uh, than it is to actually feel the pain and the loss that occurs when somebody leaves. For a long time, I thought I had the right goal, which was to have it not bother me at all when people left. To just be able to say, really genuinely, hey, Good luck. Hope you find a better place. We'll miss you. See you later. And then just go on with my day as if nothing has happened. But when I look at this story, and as I've reflected more over the last few years on Jesus' costly love for us, I've realized that that is a really, really bad goal. Because the only way to reach that is if you decide to stop loving. The only way to get to a place where you stop caring about whether or not someone wants to be in relationship with you is when you've decided that simply the cost is just too much. It's much easier to just not love. And it seems to me that that's not a place that a pastor or that anyone who follows Jesus should ever reach. Broken relationship should always cause pain and loss. You know, I think this is really important actually for us to remember in this season in which we seem to find ourselves in our culture. The truth is, I'm saying nothing new. We've said it before. This is clearly a divided time in our society. And the church 
is not immune to it. Masks or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines, Republicans or Democrats, black or white, Prince William or Prince Harry. (laughs) There are lots of places in which we can divide. And if you're anything like me, the propensity is to find the group that you really like and with whom you agree with everything and cut off everybody else because it is so much easier. It is so much more comfortable to just be with those who agree with everything that you agree with. It is much easier. It is much more comfortable, but it is not love. There is simply no way to love and not be willing to be made vulnerable and not be willing to suffer loss or pain. I wish there were an easier way, but as we see with Jesus, he is continuing to say we have to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to do that. And I understand it does feel like a betrayal or a denial. This is a fascinating thing about social media is that you can know somebody for a long time and all of a sudden they put up an opinion and you're like, what? We had a thing. And it feels like a betrayal or a denial. And the question that we have when we face those moments is whether we will take the easier route where we simply excoriate our opponents or whether we choose to reflect the painful and costly love of Jesus. As I thought about that, I realized... How thankful I am for you all. I have a lot of pastor friends. It's kind of a weird group. (laughs) And many of their churches are divided. And one of the things that I want you to know from the bottom of my heart. How amazed I am by your willingness to stay engaged even when you disagree. I know there are many of you who who, who don't like having to wear a mask and you are wearing a mask even right now with gritted teeth underneath it. I can see those gritted teeth. But you still come and you still engage. And you're still in relationship. I know there are some who don't agree with what I have said about racism. Either you think, well, you didn't say enough, or you think you didn't say it, you said too much. And and, and I'll be honest, there are some who have left. That's okay, I get it. But, But I want you to know how much it moves me that the vast majority of you have said, we we don't 
agree with you. We may not even like you. But we are going to continue in relationship with you. And I want you to know that when you do that, you're not just being nice or polite. It just doesn't matter that much. But you are reflecting the love of Jesus that says, in spite of the emotional cost that this might be to me, in spite of the pain of the disagreement or the, the, the betrayal or denial that I may see, I love this body and I want to reflect the vulnerable and costly love of Jesus. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're in a place that you've just been overwhelmed by all the calls of Jesus over the last few weeks. You just feel like it's, it's almost too much. And who is this Jesus? I just don't agree with some of these things. I want you to know, I want you to know that Jesus loves you passionately. And in those moments when you disagree or just when you're struggling, I want you to know that Jesus weeps over you. And I hope and pray that as more of us begin to experience that reflection of Jesus, that it will begin to help us to understand our own call as we go out and love those with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree. Knowing that that cost, as real as it may be, reflects the beauty of a Jesus who has refused to be God without us. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we admit that there are times when it is not easy to follow you. Times when we struggle with wondering where you are and why it is that you call us to live this life. I pray in those moments, Lord, that we would remember you not as a machine, not as someone who has no emotion over us, but as someone who is deeply longing to be in relationship, whose heart breaks when ours breaks. And that as we begin to experience that, that we would then also see how we are called to go out and to be a witness of that same kind of love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.